everybody. This is Chris. Welcome to the Sausage of Science, where we investigate what goes into or how the how the sausage of the science is made. And today we have on our show, um, Kara will be uh, out today. Kara had another obligation. So it'll be me with Dr. Emily Pollack, who is a Prevention Effectiveness Fellow at the CDC. Um, she studies, uh, she works in the Division of Sexually Transmitted Disease Prevention, where she works on bringing a more robust understanding of human behavior to the challenges of STI modeling uh, for public health. She earned her PhD in biological anthropology from UW, uh, University of Washington, for those of you not in the know, and our producer, Christina Gildy, recommended her. So thank you, Christina. I tried to get Christina to come jump in the, the studio here and co-host for the first time as she was in a meeting and I, I admittedly asked her really, really late. Um, but anyway, Dr. Pollack uh, graduated with a PhD in BioAnth with a certificate from the Center for Studies in Demography and Ecology there. And her dissertation was called Epidemics as Complex Systems, Demography Networks and Treatment of Chlamydia Trachom... Oh my God, I don't know the species name of chlamydia. Well, gosh, I guess I'm not a real human biologist, am I? Okay, T-R-A-C-H-O-M-A-T-I-S. I'll have to get her to tell me how to pronounce that, which focused on applying dynamic network analysis to understand how behavioral, biological, and biomedical factors influence chlamydia reinfection. For today's interview, however, in addition to talking a little bit about chlamydia, we read a new article called Modeling the Impact of Sexual Networks in the transmission of monkeypox virus among gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, United States 2022, that was recently published in Morbidity and Mortality uh, Weekly Report. So let me bring Dr. Pollock on. Howdy ho. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am great. I, I did a little intro right before I brought you on so uh, you wouldn't have to suffer me reading your your bio and mispronouncing things. <laughs> so do me a favor, um, uh, chlamydia, what's the species name there? Chlamydia trachomatis. Trachomatis, I, I stumbled over it three times and finally just spelled it out. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Kara's not available today, so apologies. You get half the charisma, or about a third of the charisma as usual. She brings. <laughs> a, she carries a lot of water for me. But the way we always start out the show, so the, the idea of the show is it's a play on how the sausage is made, what goes into making the sausage. We want to know what goes into making the scientist. And the way we always start off, the main ingredient in any science has got to be a scientist, right? There's got to be someone to do the deed and find, and we want to find out why it is. Well, for, in your case, you know, we want to find out like the long path to uh, biological anthropology and then how you end up becoming an expert in sexually transmitted infections and working at the <laughs> CDC. So if you don't mind, you can start at the cooling of the earth. You can start with grad school, wherever you want, whatever you feel is part of your path. Sure. Well, um, I think in high school, when I was on my way to college, um, I did my undergrad at Stanford. And I think like many people who potentially grew up on the West Coast, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I thought that that was going to be my path. Um, and at the time, I really liked chemistry. And so I was going to be like a marine biochemist or something like that. And then I got to Stanford and immediately realized that I was actually not very good at chemistry. Um, so, so I had to make a backup plan. Um, but I've always been really interested in infectious diseases. Um, 
And I started taking biology courses and I started taking anthropology courses. And really the intersection of those two things is where I kind of first got my, oh, this is this could, this could be good for the long term, potentially. Um, I was in a class on how environments change and that and how that changes our relationship to infectious diseases and how these environments are changing largely because of human practices uh yeah and how and how our health is really reflective of you know it, when we go and tear down a forest to build a highway it turns out we might come into contact with different kinds of animals and pathogens <laughs> um big surprise there but it was fascinating to me so I kept on that path for a while. And I think the next aha moment was a class taught by my undergrad advisor, Jamie Holland Jones on network analysis. And so he was an anthropologist, but he also was really into math and networks. And it this was the first time it really dawned on me that we could really quantify the relationships around us and use that information to understand how our relationship to disease changes based on our contacts. Um, and so this this was a big like, okay, this is this is awesome. And and then I left. <laughs> I, I took some time off. I, I didn't have a question, I think, that I, I didn't I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to grad school. So I spent two years working in the music industry in San Francisco. Oh yeah, what'd you do? <laughs> Tell me about that. I used to work in the music industry too. Oh, no way. Um, so yeah. I worked for an agency called Partisan Arts based up in Sausalito. And we represented probably about 30 artists and helped them book their tours. And it was really fun. <laughs> Anybody that we heard of? Uh, our largest client was Jack Johnson. So oh, cool. Possibly. Yeah, just so, so, so we're relating to each other. I used to work for Caroline Distribution Company in New York City. So I worked there around the time. They, they broke, like, before me. Smashing Pumpkins, Primus, stuff like that. I was there for like Chemical Brothers, Fat Boy Slim. So uh, and then and then so tell me how you then left that what many people consider like a dream kind of job and ended up in in academia. <laughs> I was way too much of a nerd to be in that field, <laughs> if you can call it a field. I. I'm a early, I'm not, I'm not really a night owl. And so I found it hard to stay up late and like go to all of our artist shows. You want to support them and you want to meet them, but it would be like two, three in the morning. And I was just like, I can't hang. I'm not that cool. <laughs> I also distinctly remember reading this really interesting pop science book about the physics of uh, really big waves, like over a hundred meter tall waves, freak waves. And I knew that the artist that we were going to go see that night was a surfer and ended up like talking at him about this cool book that I had read for like way too long. And he was so nice about it and it was not socially acceptable at all. I took his, took up his time like that. And I was like, maybe, maybe this is not the path for me. That's um, hilarious. I, um, I, it just reminds me real quickly. Uh, I think it's Brett Garowitz from bad religion was, uh, mm. I think a PhD in engineering or something. Uh, and he wrote, a, he wrote a, a pop science book that integrated uh the whole music scene too so i, I have a lot of uh affection for that type of integration so I, and i completely understand i i can't i can't go to shows that are after eight anymore <laughs> <laughs> it is it is a struggle um but that's fascinating i didn't know that i i'm a big fan of bad religion so i might have to look that up um, yeah it might be greg gaffin but one of those two yeah okay <laughs> um yeah so i emailed my I started doing, you know, some some research while I still had access to journals um, and about what I potentially wanted to study. And so I got back in contact with my advisor at Stanford 
and said, you know, I think I want to come back to school. I think I've had some time. I think I'm ready for this. I want to do something that relates to networks and infectious diseases and people and behavior. And he basically said, you have to go to my friend, Dr. Steve Goodrow at UW. <laughs> and so that's how it worked out. I, I applied, I got in, and I spent six years at UW with Steve, and it was wonderful. Um, I kind of straddled the line in between, we were in the biological anthropology department, um, but a lot of our research took place also within demography and epidemiology, and so it was a really great way to brush up on my quantitative skills and public health skills, but also think about human behavior and, you know, the way how we communicate and how that, you know, makes public health effective and not effective potentially. And yeah, so that's kind of where I am now. And that's that's how I ended up largely at the CDC. Steve had a couple projects that were funded by the CDC. And that kind of piqued my interest in terms of, they weren't necessarily the most, I think, scientifically interesting projects, but I really liked the ethos of, this is how we can serve our broader community um, through the lens and like you, use our skills to help, help out public health. Um, and I liked that a lot. And how long have you been at the CDC? About almost 18 months. Okay. So you've been there right in the heart of all of the, well, the hell that we're all going through, and in some ways the, the redemption of biological anthropology is relevant to public health. So I know these are questions that I sort of stuck in at the end, but I worked with CDC folks when before uh, the COVID pandemic when there was a Zika outbreak and we were in American Samoa and, and CDC folks came over to understand how why they had the policies that they had uh, we went to uh, visit a few of them at Emory, who we had uh, connections with through Peter Brown. And so I have a sort of like various views of how the CDC operates. So I, I'm curious to you, is like, uh, has the pandemic transformed how the CDC views biological anthropologists? Is it or 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 I don't know if you ha if you have any backstory on that or just how has that been for you as an anthropologist working in a public health setting like that on such a huge institutional level? I think that the the COVID-19 pandemic, so I started the CDC while not in the heyday, shall we say, of, of COVID-19 and some of the communication issues that we had nationally, not just the CDC, but I think everyone in general and, you know, and modelers in general. It was a challenging time for everyone. I think one of the biggest takeaways for the CDC was that the biggest audience for a lot of the data that we collect and use really is the general public. And that wasn't true in so much for other diseases the way it was true for COVID-19. Because like a lot of what we do are kind of your regular more endemic diseases. Like my home division is STDs. Um, we, you know, if you're Cancer stats are interesting for cancer stats people, but not, nece not necessarily everyone is gonna be interested in that and be interested in having access to the data as soon as they can get it. And so I think that that changed the way, a, a lot of the way that the CDC is approaching communication of data and trying to get data out to people much quicker than they have before and trying to be clear about messaging and stuff like that. They're trying to have all of the wheels spinning a little bit closer together, I think. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, I, I can sympathize. I just came, the reason I was late, by the way, and I apologize is because 
I'm one of the directors for a new public engagement learning community. And we're really, you know, this is what we're talking about, like how we get messaging out there, how we how we interact with our communities. And, and that starts with our ourselves, right? And how we, we communicate and create an environment of equity, right? And so I'm always curious about questions like that. But let me jump into the article that you said you would like to highlight. It's the most recent article. Um, and it's the first uh, opportunity we've actually had on the show now to talk about monkeypox. So the article is called, and I, I read it once before, but I'll, I'll reiterate it for, for listeners um, as though we're, we're live or something. For listeners who just joined us, um, <laughs> modeling the impact of sexual networks in the transmission of monkeypox virus among gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men, United States, 1922, in Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. So just really first question is, is that is that a journal that 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 is um, uh, publicly available? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, it is the CDC's kind of in-house journal. In-house is maybe not quite the right word, but that's effectively what it is. They largely use it to put out stats about prevalence and incidence of diseases. So this was actually the first time in a long time a modeling paper had been in this journal. Oh, okay, cool. So, um, so as I said, first first episode about monkeypox, which. You know, in some senses, I mean, we're we're it's it's it was all over the news. I was in Hawaii doing field work; it was all over the news. But you know, I kind of missed the initial uh, report about it. I was like, what what's kind of going on? And then um, it's dropped off. Uh, so I wonder: one, have we we solved all the world's problems, which I can't imagine, <laughs> or or is there uh, uh, you know the population that's affected is is perpetually stigmatized? So I'm I'm curious: uh, one, just uh, you know, let's let's really just start with what what is monkeypox and who's affected by it. Yeah, so monkeypox is an infectious disease. It's a pox virus, so it's in the same family as smallpox and cowpox. I hope family is right. I'm not I'm not a virologist, so maybe family is not the correct term, but it's the same category. Um, the tests that we're using for monkeypox we're using for monkeypox originally were developed to test any orthopox virus. So, but primarily smallpox was developed in mind. Monkeypox traditionally is endemic in the forested areas of Africa. So thinking Central and West Africa, it's actually very much a misnomer. Uh, it is not spread by contact with monkeys or any non-human primate. It is primarily rodent transmission. People get bitten in their homes. Um, or when they're hunting, or they come into contact with an infectious animal. Um, and but it's often through bites. Uh, and it, you develop regular sick symptoms like malaise, fever, aches, chills initially, which can kind of make it confusing to diagnose. But you do eventually develop a very characteristic rash, much in the same way that you would with smallpox. Um, so it's, that's kind of the analog. It's a, it's a not as deadly version of smallpox. Um, and we kind of world community kind of first clued into the fact that it was starting to be transmitted via non-rodent transmission um, in late May, because we had some of the first cases documented coming out of um, Spain and Portugal and associated with large gatherings of event, large events um, in those countries. So, so how has it become so? How has it become a sexually transmitted infection and and associated with gay, bisexual men, men who have sex with men? So the how, I think, is a question that many geneticists are are, are working on. I think there is evidence now that we that we know about now that 
um, in countries like Nigeria in particular, there were cases of monkeypox being transmitted sexually that doctors were noticing, but because it was unusual, it was potentially overlooked, or there are also other political and human rights issues at play there because in these countries in which it's endemic, it's very stigmatized to be gay or bisexual and or mm -hmm. participate in any of those activities. And so you could say that doctors were possibly protecting people by not investigating some of these cases further. But we do now have evidence that people noticed that it was spreading sexually um, in roughly 2017, 2018. So this is not actually quite as new as we assumed it was initially. Um, so it's been kind of building up a bit, we think. And it's kind of by chance, I think that it started to spread in the way that it did in terms of global scale. So it was probably, I mean, the origins are relatively debated, but it's probably likely that someone from, people from these countries attended these events with everyone else around the world. And because there's a lot of activity and close contact at these, um, events during the summer, it was able to kind of take hold and go on from there. Okay. So in terms of your paper, you guys are modeling the risk for monkeypox based on contact. So can you tell us uh, where the data come from and then how you, to the, to the extent that you can relate the modeling without high level math, right? Cause I don't know it. <laughs> yeah. Put it put it in lay terms for us how how you developed this model and what, what what the process was. Yeah, so the data are actually about ten years old at this point. So this is also a call for regular data collection. Um, the the data were collected in Atlanta, Georgia, about ten years ago. It comes from several different surveys uh, that all. I believe we're associated with Emory, researchers at Emory doing these studies. The, the basic question was trying to figure out why is HIV prevalence in black, gay and bisexual and other men of sex with men so much higher than it was in the white population. Uh, so they went out and they, they, did, they did surveys at venues largely. So bookstores, bars, clubs, that sort of stuff, people, where people would gather community centers and interviewed people and their partners about how many sexual partners that they had, what, you know, if they used condoms, how, if they considered certain partners, like, were they in relationships with them for longer? Did they feel more connected to them? Or were they casual partners? How many one-time or anonymous partners have they had over the last year? Those sorts of questions so we can kind of get at the, un understand the structure of the network in, in these, in this population. Okay, so so just to clarify, and this is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw myself under the bus now, right? So in in my reading, I missed the HIV. Uh, you're you're using HIV as to model sexual transmission for monkeypox. So you're using those data, and you're focusing in on male to male transmission. But from what I'm I'm hearing from you, monkeypox can be transmitted by any by anyone ostensibly. Yes. Yes, so, so the data were developed with an HIV model in mind, but we're not modeling the spread of HIV in this population. All of the parameters are set for what we believe are reasonable parameters for monkeypox. So monkeypox can be transmitted in, uh, by other means and not just between men who have sex with men, right? So it's yes. not just a quote unquote gay disease or, or something like that. We, we don't, we're not turning this into a stigmatizing disease is, is sort of what I'm asking. 
That's correct. The, the, the route of transmission is certainly not exclusive to men or, or gay men even. It's skin to skin contact. It's any contact with the Legion. So things like hugging, kissing, sharing the same bed with someone, all of those are possible routes of transmission. I think part of the reason why it hasn't spread into what we would call the general US population is it has actually a relatively short infectious period. Um, and so in order for transmission to be sustained, we need relatively high rates of those sorts of contacts. If it gets into like we have like household transmissions, for example, and that's fairly easy if you're coming to contact with the members of your household. Um, we've, we've just certainly documented plenty of cases through that transmission. But in terms of the, the majority of the cases have been sexually transmitted. Okay. So when you talk about I'm, I'm rereading my question here to see if I changed your wording. So when you talk about contact and risk, it sounded to me, my assumption was that you were talking about one night stands or hookups, but it doesn't sound like that's what you're talking about, right? You're just talking about one time encounters versus multiple encounters. Yes. We, we model both. So the network is actually a set of three networks. We model longer-term main partnerships, we model shorter-term casual partnerships, and we model one-time contacts. And we can colloquially think of these as one-night stands. So all of these work, the networks talk to each other, and, and so there's, if you like have a certain number of casual partnerships, you might be less likely to have um, a main or a longer-term partnership, and that's all based on this Atlanta data that we collected, not I collected other researchers of collected. Right. So so I guess, you know, and and I'm I'm I just want to be clear cuz I don't want to spread misinformation by the way I ask the question. So when we say, you know, one night stand, we're we're not implying that there was any penetration and that's not necessarily how the disease is spread. It's skin to skin contact. Yes, it's not it's it can be it can be spread through penetration, but it doesn't have to be. Okay. Spread. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's any I sort think, of any sort of close contact. Yeah, no, I think it's important to to yeah. understand that. That that answers my you know. So I was I was trying to to read into your the phrasing right, and it sounded very either uh, public healthy and like neutral, <laughs> or that you were you were really making a conscious effort to not stigmatize a population. So I was that's, that's what I was sort of getting at with that question. So I wonder if you could just comment on like what the goal of the paper then was to to what what information do you put were you putting out there who is intended to read it and what is the the intended action agenda or item that you hope can can result from the paper that you produce yeah that's a great question especially because it gives me the chance to kind of highlight how interconnected all of the components of a response at the cdc is mm -hmm. so we, as on the modeling team, we've been developing this model of monkeypox transmission to understand potentially what were the largest drivers of monkeypox. And at the same time that we were doing that, we had folks who were on the more health communications side. And so they were able to add a couple questions on what's called the American Men's Internet Survey, or AMIS. And so they were able to ask participants their perceptions of monkeypox and if they had changed their behavior as a result of the spread of monkeypox. And so from that data, we were able to see, and this is before, it's important to know that like it took a fairly long time for vaccines to roll out because initially we had a very small supply 
of the of the safer vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are two vaccines developed, and they're developed not with monkeypox in mind, but with if we were ever to have smallpox unleashed on the world again. Um, and and the one that we have in a large stockpile is dangerous for people who are immunocompromised. And so people who have HIV in particular. And so that was a real concern when it's when monkeypox is spreading in this population. And so we had a smaller reserve of a newer vaccine that was safe for folks with HIV. And so we had a, a fairly limited supply of that at first. And so this was before our vaccines were really able to be distributed widely. And so we were really relying on people to protect themselves and change their own behavior. We were interested if they were doing that as a risk mitigation system. And so they were able to ask a couple of questions and it turns out that yes, when when people are given information that they can do something with to protect their health, they do often change their behavior. In the model, we are trying to tie a bunch of pieces together. And we were able to show that because of this interaction between the rate of partner turnover um, in terms of really short relationships and the the short infectious period. So you need those shorter relationships to maintain uh, the spread of monkeypox in a population. But we also saw that men were reducing those types of relationships um, in response to the outbreak. And so we were able to show that the that their behavior, um, that they were taking agency, and it had effects on what we think probably is, would have been the like maximum number of people infected, that that was lower because of these men were taking agency. Okay, so let me, uh, th- this answers another question that I just realized I, I meant to ask and I didn't. So when I read this and I, and, and it tells me that uh, the highest risk group are the ones who are basically having one night stands, right? Without telling us what about a one night stand is inherently risky, or at least at least in, in my read, I didn't pick up on it because I was probably thinking about the stigma and what sort of value judgments people tend to place on one night stands and, and sort of like what type of person you might have a one night stand with. But that's not what you're saying at all. You're saying it's because of how the trajectory of the illness for monkeypox, like the manifestation of symptoms is so short that if you're in a longer relationship, you're gonna notice them and get treatment. Uh, But if you're in a shorter relationship, you're more likely to get it because you get in contact with someone before they realize they have it. Is that, is that a- Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Okay, so before, before I transition to asking you about chlamydia and stuff, what what else should we we be aware of about the research you've been doing on monkeypox? And are are we still, are we still in the midst of, of the outbreak? I think in some ways, yes. So case counts have dropped pretty dramatically at the national level. There are still a couple of regions that are seeing, I think, continued spread. And that is partly a geography and timing thing, like in larger states, it might take longer to reach certain populations. And also when I say the disease takes longer, it might also take longer to get folks vaccinated and for information to reach people. So there's a timing component that I think we'll we'll see some kind of slow cases for 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 a bit longer. Um, mm. But I do think that by and large, we've passed the worst of the outbreak. One of the things that was really great about working on this response was I mentioned before the kind of interconnectedness of the work that I was doing and work with other people are doing and the way that we translated some of that information to public health materials, which doesn't show up in the article, but that was kind of the next 
step was to we put out this scientific article and then also create infographics and messaging that we can work with public health providers and, and especially community groups um, because this population has been so adversely affected by HIV and because they had to fight so hard to get it recognized and you know taken seriously there's an ethos in this community that they say nothing for us without us which I think is really wonderful it, part of a lot of the successes that we've had with monkeypox are due to partnerships as, with community programs. And it's not just, it's educating public health officials, but by and large, it's working with local communities and their trusted advisors and getting their feedback on how we should be messaging and how we can be communicating. And so it was so great to work on this um, response and do this like very technical niche thing, but also like be able to watch it flow through everything else and how that gets translated um, into talking with, you know, people who are actually affected by this. So I think that what a big takeaway is that we don't do anything in our own little bubble, right? And we can make the most difference when we're actually working with the communities that are affected by these things. And for an anthropologist, that's a very like logical, obvious conclusion, but it is not always true in public health or hasn't been always true in public health. And, and it's also uh, having, as I said, just come from a conversation with the, the authors of activist academics, uh, it's hard to do in any institution, right? Whether it's uh, the CDC or a university institution. As biological anthropologists, we have the best of intentions. But when we consider uh, the public somebody outside of where we are, um, we're effectively uh, reifying the elitism of academia and our distance. So I totally appreciate what you're saying. Now, you, you mentioned uh, the rates dropping. Uh, potentially, that's good news. And another good news, your other article that you recently published suggests, uh, let's see, I don't think I wrote down a title, but it, it suggests that the chlamydia and gonorrhea burden among U.S. high school students, even before the COVID pandemic, when they couldn't like see each other, was starting to drop. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that study and, and what it means? Yeah, so this was a part of the project that eventually led me to work at CDC. This was a CDC-funded study. We had initially actually developed a tool for the Division of Adolescent and School Health with public health providers and like schools in mind, we wanted uh, local jurisdictions to be able to kind of take what kind of bare minimum information they had about the burden of sexually transmitted diseases in their high schools and say, okay, what if we ran this sort of intervention or this sort of education program and it raised condom use by X percent? What would what might our diagnoses look like in the next year? And that's, you know, it's a, it's a very complex system and most public health, local public health jurisdictions are not gonna have the resources to do something like that. So we built this tool to generate a lot of the infrastructure and default parameters that they might need. So they could, all, all, at the minimum, all they have to do is put in their own current diagnoses, say whatever behavior change outcome they might like to see, and then it'll show what might some, what might that look like for them. Um, and so this paper kind of took that a step further. So they can they can ask what steps they could take to reduce their own rates. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So we're not we don't model a specific intervention. Like we don't tell them what to say to high school students or something like that. But what we're doing is saying if you ran an education program or had 
condoms available in schools or something perhaps less politically challenging, what, and you thought that the intervention would be, the effect of that might be people having fewer sexual partners or right. using condoms more. What might that look like for your diagnoses in school? Gotcha. And so, so what did you find? Yeah, so the, the paper, so that was a tool that we developed. That was the that was the end product for that. But then we we took that same structure, basically, and instead of just saying, okay, what's well, going to happen in the next year, we looked at almost a decade's worth of data from the Youth Risk and Behavior Survey, the YRBS, asked how has adolescent sexual behavior changed in the last decade or so, um, and what difference has that made, basically. The default behavior was sexual behavior in 2007, and we used three metrics, um, three facets of sexual behavior. It was the age at which someone debuted into the sexual population. So when was the first time they had sex? How many partners do they have per year? And what is the likelihood that they will use a condom? With the, with those three data points, we, we tracked the change over the last decade and then said, okay, well, what if those behaviors hadn't changed? And so that was our counterfactual. This was kind of a fun paper in that you have different lovers going in different directions. It's a fairly, at least in the STD world, it's a fairly well-known phenomena or issue if you talk to some people that condom use is declining. And it's not just among adolescents, it's among everyone and has been for quite some time. On the, on the flip side of that, we've seen that adolescents in this study population were starting to have higher ages at first sexual debut, so they were waiting longer, and they had fewer sexual partners per year. It's kind of an interesting story when you look at it. So some behaviors that we think might expose us to STDs more regularly, so you know, using condoms less frequently, is balanced and in fact counteracted by the fact that people are having less sex in general. So that was kind of a cool story that we were able to tell that these you know, some, some metrics that it was a little bit of a red herring when we want to look at the whole picture of what's happening with STDs in adolescence. Okay, you've just blown my mind. Why are, <laughs> why are they, why are they having less sex? I mean, we had a sexual revolution. We all kind of lived through it. I mean, granted, it never looked like it did on TV growing up, you know, um, and I know when I when I was doing research on sexual behavior and would take measures of, of intercourse partners, you know, the what I was getting from undergraduates was remarkably low relative to sort of a pop cultural depiction of Randy undergrads and, and all their parties. Was, I think the, mm -hmm. the average intercourse partners for, for that study was like 1.5, right? So like one and a half, which surprised me. But what's going on? What do you think? I think a couple of things are going on. We didn't we didn't really try and dig into any causal explanations in the paper, but from Obviously, I'm quite a bit older than the people in this study, but I have been able to watch the availability of sex ed content become a lot more detailed and accessible and relevant uh, in terms of, you know, there's a lot more LGBTQ sex ed that is available, not just not necessarily in schools, but there are more resources for students online and through other, you know, community centers. I think there has been a real push to educate students and allow them, give them the tools to make their own decisions. And I think that that has had a positive effect on their decision-making about themselves. 
Interesting. So I wonder what uh, if if you broke it down by state, and I'm going to throw my own state under the bus because we just had this conversation with uh, one of my colleagues, Diane Tober, who studies egg donation. And we were talking about sex ed difference. And when she teaches that, she has to start with a primer on sex ed because a lot of these Alabama students say they'd never had a sex ed class ever in their entire lives. And then uh, we're comparing that to she used to be in California where, you know, in elementary school, they are getting very, very graphic sex education <laughs> and are very, you know, the rest of them are learning on the Internet. So I wondered if you, if you saw any trends by state. Can you um, can you tell our Alabama legislators to legislate for some sex ed? Is there is there evidence for that? I mean, there's a lot of evidence to say that absence only education doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty well documented. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of the data set that we were using, we were using the, the national level data, which doesn't break it out by jurisdiction. But if s certain jurisdictions do participate in their like local YRBS, we could use some of that information to make that case, certainly. That's fascinating. So yeah. no, I went to, I went to Catholic school for like 12 years and received a wonderful education, but zero sex ed. So. That's ironic then that you, uh, do you think, uh, this is just sort of a personal question, uh, is what we didn't learn uh, as young people, does that lead us to what we end up studying as we get older? Or I don't know, how did you f find your way into this area of research? I mean, you kind of told me at the beginning, but now that you've just said you didn't have any sex ed, how, how has that <laughs> affected your interest? Maybe, I think it's also, I have, an inclination to, I just think it's, it's so weird that we're all so fussy about sex. It doesn't seem intuitive to me at all. And, you know, it, I mean, I mean, maybe because I never had any sex and, but about, I've always found that like having more information is usually a good thing. And I always valued being able to assess the world around me learn something about it and make decisions about my health and my life that were relevant to me. And I think when we, you know, take away that opportunity from kids by treating them like that they don't deserve to do that or they can't possibly make good decisions, you know, it's really doing them a disservice. Because it's not like adults make rational choices about sex either. What? <laughs> yeah, biology gets us all, doesn't it? Yeah. So just sort of a last question or, or, or thought. You mentioned, um, you know, the controversy of condoms in schools. Uh, I have limited experience because, you know, growing up, we didn't, we didn't, I was, I was in Indiana, you know, Indiana similar, reduced sex ed, certainly not having any condoms in school. When uh, my encounter with the CDC was during, as I said, during the Zika outbreak, and they brought a skid of condoms over, but uh, American Samoa had the worst condom education of any state, territory, or tribe, I think at the time. And and so it was like, here are condoms. And everyone was like, what the hell are you going to do with those? Like, well, we, need to, we need to figure out a way to distribute them. And they were like, well, the only place everybody always shows up is church. And like, great, let's pass them out in church. And everybody was like, well, have you lost your fucking mind? Right. <laughs> so I wonder, you know, like, is that still a widespread problem beyond American Samoa? Like getting condoms in schools so that kids have access to these if they're if they're active? Because. I mean, we do know that the rumor or the stereotype that making condoms accessible means you'll have more sex. I mean, God, there's a lot of teenagers who wish that were true, but yeah. or and adults too, let's be honest. But it's not. And so what what are those efforts like for the CDC of getting condoms out and, and using that as an intervention? Do you have insight into that? 
Not as much. So the, the projects I work on that I worked on when I was talking about the chlamydia and gonorrhea studies, those were largely funded through the Division of Adolescent and School Health. That, so that is their bread and butter, mm-hmm. or at least figuring out ways to support schools in their health goals. Okay. And so I think that states that were adverse to that type of assistance would not request it. So yeah, so my research is a little bit more, it's usually a little bit more focused on adults. I'm working on a, there's a potential partially effective gonorrhea vaccine that's in clinical trials right now. And we're trying to figure out if it's actually useful. It potentially doesn't last for a very long time. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the question, the questions that I'm asking. The The school health is a challenging question and I'm kind of <laughs> I'm glad that I don't have to wade into those waters very often. <laughs> I understand that. So I want to ask you one other sort of academic question before we sort of jump to the what completes you question. And again, I, I just came out of this workshop and this question was proposed and I thought it was a really interesting one because you're working in an institution. I'm working in an institution. We're doing these programs and yet uh, in the person Colette can is an associate dean and yet proposed this question. And, and the answer is I found really interesting. So the question was, are the institutions we're working in, in terms of being humanitarian, are they redeemable? In other words, we know there are things that don't work and that the many of these institutions were developed in a period of history when only white men were the ones that were being considered and giving, given treatment. And instead of tearing those down and rebuilding uh, for a socially just world, we just keep patching things. So my question to you as a biological anthropologist working in the CDC is, is the CDC as a public health institution, a federal institution redeemable? Um, in other words, is it improvable or is it not? And should it be torn down? That's an excellent question. I think that the answer is mostly yes, in terms of it being redeemable. Like mm-hmm. it's by no means a perfect institution, <laughs> certainly not. But I do think that, I mean, many many things have like aligned on this trajectory, but the COVID-19 pandemic in particular really highlighted the ways in which we absolutely need to be doing better. And some of this has already been happening in, in my division for a while, like our priority populations are those with high STD burdens, which are often overlooked populations by the public health community at large. And so we are seeking a lot of the, most of our divisional money goes to public health programs in places that need them the most. And they're funding like community clinics and working with people to try and connect them to resources that are largely the community telling us what we need and how we can we can help them make it happen. And so I do think all of those systems can be improved, but I do like that about the division that I work in, that that's kind of their focus. In the broad scheme of things, I absolutely think that's true. One one of the things that tended to bug me about the messaging around COVID-19, and I say this, this is my personal opinion. This is not (laughs) a message from the CDC, but, you know, we, the people who were most at risk, you know, in terms of like really harmful consequences were the elderly elderly and the disabled and the immunocompromised. And we tended to treat the general population as excluding those groups that a lot of the recommendations were around, well, these people are doing this and protecting themselves and they were moving themselves from the population when that is in no way like a reasonable <laughs> long-term solution. 
when we think about public health, it, you know, it, yes, it has historically been done by and for white men. And mm-hmm. we definitely need to think through ways to improve, improve that. Yeah, um, that's but a- yeah, I, th- I think it's a, a lot of the, I think a lot of the people, a lot of my colleagues all have their, their hearts in the right places, but it's a large bureaucracy and the wheels turn slowly. Luckily, I think that a lot of people want to see change. Yeah. So I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic. I like that answer. Thanks for your your thoughtfulness. And it reminds me when the mask mandate was sort of uh, lowered. My wife has lupus, right? So she's among yeah. those immunocompromised people. And she was like, so what? Fuck me, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> so what's next for you? What other projects are you working on now or in the future? Well, you know, all of the projects that I was working on were put on hold. So I have to figure out how to pick some of them back up now that um, my team's requirements for the monkeypox outbreak is is winding down a little bit. Um, so I mentioned one project that I had before. We're thinking about there's a partially effective gonorrhea vaccine. It's actually a meningitis vaccine, but we've found the meningitis B vaccine actually has some cross immunity effects for gonorrhea. And so the medication is in a number of clinical trials right now, basically trying to figure out just how effective it is and how long the immunity might last. I'm developing a model of gonorrhea transmission among heterosexuals this time. Eventually, when we get these stats from the clinical trials, we're going to use it to try and figure out what populations, what what people might most benefit from this. Like, is it people who might be entering college or people with a recent STD diagnosis? That sort of that we can ask those kinds of questions with these models. So that's my that's my next big project. Cool. It sounds like fun, and I don't yeah. mean that a jest because we're all. We're all big nerds. We all love disease and dying things, but we also love people and don't really want them to die. But the whole thing is fascinating. So when you're not modeling disease, what completes you? What do you do for fun? Uh, you go into rock shows or music, see music in Atlanta, uh, reviving your past interests. What is uh, what are your hobbies, books, TV shows, all of the above? We, we basically want to steal ideas. <laughs> well, I do say I love. I still love these. I'm actually located in Denver. Um, oh shit! So Why don't you, oh, you're not in Atlanta. Okay, I'm I was going to tell you. You're right down the road. You should come give a talk, but that's a little further. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to, but yeah, it's a little bit more challenging. Um, so yeah, when I onboarded at the CDC, they were still fully remote because of COVID, and then they realized that lease space in Atlanta is very expensive, <laughs> so oh, wow. for, they let a lot of us stay remote. And so, yeah, I'm in I'm in Denver, and right now I'm looking out at uh, some melting snow. It snowed here last night, and the mountains are starting to look very snowy. And my wife and I like to ski and cr- downhill ski and cross country ski. Um, I'm not very good at it, but I don't <laughs> think you have to be good at your hobbies to enjoy them. <laughs> That's true. True. Um, so I'm looking forward to that starting up. What else? Where I'm rewatching Hannibal at the moment. Ooh. Um, yeah, you want to talk about like intense psychology? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, so are you at the uh, Denver meetings or AABA? Are you still involved in the the anthropology professional organizations, or were you before? Not as curious. much. Most of my most of my work was more on the like network analysis side. So I went to those meetings um, and also the kind of public health infectious disease meetings. Yeah. And now we really only go to meetings that have like applied public health focus because that's what the CDC will fund. Right on. Anything you're reading for fun? I am just starting a book that I'm going to forget the title of, but I read a lot of um, 
the sci-fi and fantasy. Ooh, so, so that's, that's what's usually on my, my, that's right my on. table. All right. Well, if you remember, you have to let us know. My, <laughs> I just finished one of the Octavia Butler series, which I love to death. And now I also forgot what I'm currently reading. What am I currently reading? I'm currently reading The Source by James Mishner. I'm on a James Mishner kick, historical fiction. So there's there's my recommendation. If you have 55 hours to spare, you can listen to that. But the founding of the uh, Israeli state. All right. So um, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you and chat with you and hear all about the modeling. Let us know when you have some more work that you'd like to share with us. I hope that uh, our listeners appreciate the opportunity to hear how monkeypox is being modeled. I don't think it's gotten enough press in terms of uh, having a public understanding and how the CDC works. And I, and I really do think your, your reflection on the CDC is healthy for us to hear because we have, a, I think, a bad habit of poo-pooing public health efforts and saying, they need more anthropology in them, but they're doing that. So thank you. They're trying. Well, yes, I appreciate talking to you. It's been a joy. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you celebrate it, happy Thanksgiving. And if you don't, I say I stole this from a primatologist. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, I like that. Right on. (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. So uh, thanks for listening to the Sausage of Science. Uh, You can find me at Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. Kara is at Kara Akabak. The Human Biology Association is at HumBioAssoc. Follow us all, subscribe, like, do all the things. And thank you for listening and happy uh, Thanksgiving to all of you.